So my one-year-old son has a variety of cries that he uses for different things. Um, he's got, he's like, he's like the Baskin Robbins of criers. He's got 39 flavors. Each one means something. He's like, he's like Hallmark. He's got one for every occasion. He, he's got a cry that says, um, I'm sleepy. Okay. And so this cry is very distinct. And I know this cry from the other cries. The sleepy cry is accompanied by, you know, rubbing his eyes. It's sort of a whimpery cry. It sort of trails off. Uh, and I know that means I'm tired. Right. He's got a uh, he's got a I'm hurt cry. And this is the cry if he bumps his head or if his brothers run over his toes with the tricycle. And this cry is a deep, loud, guttural, you know, ear splitting cry that echoes throughout the house. This one you don't miss. It just says I'm hurt. And so, you know, you know this cry. And if you're a parent, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. You just run straight to the child and say, okay. There's a hungry cry, and this is kind of a whimpery cry. This is like a staccato type cry. That's like it's like I don't want to mimic it, but he's like <laughs> like that kind of cry, right? And that's usually that's usually accompanied with outstretched hands following me around the house while I'm eating a sandwich. Like, dude, okay, uh, let me let me see if I can get some Cheerios. You know, um, his most distinct cry, and the one that's just the clearest of all, is his distress cry. And the distress cry is it's a very fill up the lungs and then just keep breathing. Just just blow it out. It's like a nervous, long, loud, high-pitched cry. And this is for when like he's up on a chair and he can't get down or he's wedged himself in between the lampstand and the wall and and he's stuck or he's crawled halfway under the couch but he doesn't realize that his body shape, you know, like it, it gets bigger in the middle and it just jams in there and he needs somebody to pull him by the legs, you know. In fact, the other day, I was in my office and I heard the distress cry and I literally said out loud, I know you're stuck somewhere and I'm coming to get you, buddy. And I came out of my office and he was perched on his brother's coloring uh, uh, table. It's about three feet off the ground and he's like peering over the precipice of this table, just like with that long, nervous cry, you know. So I pulled him off. Um, the reason that I know his cries And the reason that I'm going to remedy his cries is because I'm his father, right? I'm his father. And as his father, number one, I love him. And so I I love him. He means the world to me. And that's that's part of why I'm going to remedy his cries. You can put that on the screen. I love the guy, right? Number two is he's my responsibility, right? And so I'm going to make sure that I do what's best for him. Everything that I do is directed at his good. I'm not always perfect at it. I'm not always, sometimes the best thing to do is say, Rebecca, the boy is crying. Can you help us out here? Um, and, and, and the third reason, and this is not as intuitive, but the third reason that I look out for him and, and, and look out for what's best is because eventually down the road, the game plan, the hope, the aspiration, you know, the Hail Mary, the cross your fingers, the prayer is all about that he will mature into a man who loves and cares for others. That's ultimately what my role is as a dad, is that I want him to grow up and I want him to become a man of his own, right? I want him uh, to take care of maybe his own kids, maybe, maybe he won't have kids, but who, whatever. I want him to grow up and become a man who loves and cares for others. Now, we're in a series right now called Jesus Said. 
And we've been looking at all of these different things that Jesus is saying in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been walking through this series, and each uh, Sunday we talk about something that Jesus said. This Sunday, we are focusing on what Jesus said about God's response to our cries. We're, 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 respond, we're learning about when Jesus, what Jesus says, what does God do when we cry out to him like a child cries out to his father. So let me start with this passage. And this is a very challenging passage, especially in light of all of the circumstances um, that we're experiencing this week. The scripture says this, Jesus says this in Matthew 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Now, I have a particularly uh, personal relationship with this kind of passage. I grew up in a pastor's home, uh, and my dad was a pastor, and his dad, and my mom's dad, and all, you know, pastors. So I grew up hearing scriptures like this all the time. You know, scriptures like this, scriptures like, you know, if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thou removed, and cast into the sea, and it will be done. And nothing is impossible to you. And you hear these passages, right? And at about six, seven, eight years old, I go, okay, let's, let's experiment with this. Let's just, let's see if this actually pans out. Um, so I, I would, I would take these passages, and I would, you know, play little games and experiment. See, uh, one day I was, I was out in the field near our house. We lived for a little while up in a little town called Lancaster, Ohio, and there were these big fields out near our house. And I was out in the field, and I came upon uh, a, bir- a dead bird that was lying in the field. And I was probably seven, seven, eight years old. So I thought, hmm, this will be an opportunity to test out a scripture like this. So I'm out there all by myself, I don't know if anybody else does this kind of thing or if this just actually makes me a crazy person. But, you know, as long as we're sharing it together, um, you know, we're all good. We're family. Um, so I, I kneeled down beside the bird and I said, close my eyes. And I said, Lord, please raise this bird from the dead. Amen. And I looked down and guess what happened? Nothing happened. Okay, you thought, if if you're going like, is he going to say that the bird just took flight? Okay. So I thought, okay. Okay, maybe I didn't do that right. Let me try, I'm going to try that again. Lord, in the name of Jesus. Okay, there it was. That's what I missed last time. In the name of Jesus, raise this bird from the dead. Open my eyes. Nothing. Right? Say, okay, let me think here. I'm not, something I'm not getting right in the formula. So I said, Lord, you know, in the name of Jesus, with the backing of St. Gabriel and the angels and the archangels and the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit moving in and the royal diadem and all this kind of stuff, raise this bird from the dead. <laughs> Nothing happened, right? So this is a problem for me as a child because I'm looking at this scripture and I'm saying, huh, ask and it will begin. And I just asked and I just saw it and I just knocked and it didn't happen. Right? So it's confusing to me. Right? Because here's what happens. When we read a passage like this, we start to form an image of God in our mind. All of us do. And depending on what that image is, we're going to have different expectations of our prayer. We may, for instance, and many of us do this, form an image of God as a genie to be manipulated. So 
I like Amazon.com. I can go on Amazon.com and I can put my, I can look at something I want. I can just see that thing. I can look at it, see it. Then I can just push a couple buttons, pay for it. Two weeks later, or maybe even two days later, if you got the express, boom, it's at your front door. Now I've got the thing that I wanted, right? I saw it. I pushed the button and now I've got it. And sometimes people see God that way. And in fact, you'll even hear, uh, uh, you know, preachers at time preach in a way that makes God into a genie. And, this, and it goes something like, you know, if you will just visualize what you want, and then you just come to our church, and then you just pray, and then here's the most important part, put a little money in the offering, right, support my ministry, poof, God will give you that brand new car, Vanna. I mean, it's just going to be right, right there, right? And so we see God in this way. We see God as a genie who's going to respond to us, and we can manipulate God into giving us stuff, right? Or if we don't see God that way, we may see God as a formula to be mastered. A formula to be mastered. We say, well, and that's kind of where I was when I was a kid. Like, maybe I've got to do things exact right. I've got to orient my head the right way. I've got to say the right words. I've got to say them at the right time. It's like the antenna you know, at our house on our TV. If I take that antenna and I put it on the right edge of the right chair facing the right window with the right cloud formation outside, the right level of precipitation, the tilt of the earth is exactly right. Everything is perfect. I can watch a basketball game, right? But I've got to get the formula right for it to work. A lot of people think of God that way. If I just say the right words, maybe I didn't say it right. Maybe I did this, but I didn't have this in my heart, or I had that in my heart, and I didn't do it right because I need God to be predictable. I need God to be able to do what I say I want him to do right when I want him to do it, right? The problem with these conceptions and these images of God is that when people like you and I try them on and we use them and they don't work, we become very disappointed. We start to become jaded and cynical and despairing and, and, and skeptical. Um, and maybe it's not even explicit. Maybe we wouldn't say, you know what, I'm an atheist. But in our heart, we don't really believe that God is there. In other words, we start to believe that God is a fiction to be ignored. And we start to say, you know what, I just don't, I just, I was disappointed in my conception of God. I got sold a bill of goods about what God is. That turned out to be wrong. So maybe it's just, all of it's just nothing. It's just despairing, right? And you can arrive there when you read a passage like this. If you put that passage back up there, Don, when we read a passage that says, ask and it will be given, just the next slide, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open, we look at that and we say, that just seems like, yeah, just say the words and then bang, it'll happen, right? But we haven't explored the entirety of what Jesus says in this passage because Jesus doesn't, you, you, you can't just cherry pick a line here or there, right? Look at what he says. This is fascinating. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, We'll give him a snake. Now, what he's done here is he's introduced a whole new allegory, right, that reflects upon the promise. And the allegory is the allegory between a father and a son. Now, this passage is no longer transactional. I put my money in the, in the vending machine of God and I pull out the prize. It becomes relational. It becomes a relationship between God and his children. 
And now we start to see that there's a, there's a greater nuance to this whole passage about crying out to God. We're crying out to him, not as a genie, not as a formula, but as a child to the father, right? Because here, here's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying uh, that God is a father to be trusted. When you have an image of God in your mind, it's an image of God as father. Uh, when I say father, and on this Father's Day, father, the word father is one of the most powerful world, words in our language. Um, for some of you, when I say the word father, it fills you with wonderful memories of a loving and supporting dad who looked after you and took care of you and honored you and respected you and sought the best for you, and, and you have happy memories about that. Others of you, when I say father, you wince in pain because your experience with father is somebody who may have been abusive or absentee or bitter or uh, angry or just was not a good father to you. And so you have a very um, complicated image of fatherhood because it was just a troubling and difficult time in your life relating to your father. And some of you may even think, gosh, I just feel when I hear the word father, I just long because I never had him. I never met him. I never got to be around him. He was, he was either not there or he was unavailable or he was like just out of the picture. And we say, man, that word is, is a strong word. But here's what Jesus is doing in this passage. When he starts introducing this image of father, into the image of prayer, what he's doing is he's establishing a rule. He's not establishing a rule for acquisition. He's establishing a model for relationship. In other words, when he says, ask and you shall receive, it's not about, it's it's not a rule for acquiring stuff. It's a model for our relationship with God. It's a model for what it means to be a child of God. It's not transactional. It's relational. And if you're a parent, you know, you know this, that not everything your child asks for, you give, right? In, in, when, you know, when my kids go into the store, when we go into the store, and if you, ki- if you take your kids in the store, they're going to ask for a lot of stuff. Multiple times. Duplicate times. Ad nauseum times. And the stores know this because the stores put all the stuff that your kids want at about this height where they can just grab it. You know, we, we're, we're at the checkout line the other day, and Jameson's got, like, handfuls of Milky Way bars. And it's like, come on, let, Dad, can we, yeah, can, right? You're my dad, right? I'm asking, right? I'm not going to give it to him, right? I'm not going to give him what he wants for, right? Because here's what Jesus is saying. He said, a loving father seeks what is good for his child. He said, if your child asks for bread, are you going to give him a serpent? No. If he asks, you know, but on the other hand, if he asks for a serpent... Are you going to give him a serpent? No, right? Because you're looking out for what's good for your child. By the way, I gave myself free license to use my children in all of my illustrations today as a sermon because it's Father's Day. So I always have to hold back. Yeah, I always have to hold back and go, man, I'm I'm talking too much, too many children illustrations. I'm just going to write it down. Today I said, no, man, just go for it. Just just talk about the kids all day. So so I'm just using them. and, and here's the thing. When we, when we start to understand our relationship with God in this relational rather than transactional manner, a few things happen, right? A couple things that happen is we start to learn some principles that we didn't know. We start to learn the distinction between seems versus is. 
seems versus is. Seems, something might seem good to my child, but it might not be good for my child. My child thinks it's good to have ice cream for breakfast, right? It seems good, but dad says, no, you can't have ice cream for, so seems versus is. If we start to learn this as we have a relational rather than transactional relationship with God. The second one is now versus later. It might be that the thing that the child wants is good, but this isn't the right time for that good thing, right? My son this morning crawled in bed with me at 4 a.m., 4 o'clock this morning, ready to talk, had a lot of stuff on his mind to discuss. This is Jameson. Just chatting away, 4 o'clock this morning. It's good to communicate with your child. It's good to communicate with your dad. 4 a.m. is not the time for this communication, right? Sometimes it's not right now, but it's later. And the other one is this, direct versus indirect. And this is a little more subtle, right? This is something that you start to teach as the child grows. Direct versus indirect means it's good that you want that, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to give you that thing. I'm going to equip you to get that thing yourself. I'm going to walk you through the process of you learning how to get that thing. You want that toy? I could buy that for you, yes. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you more indirectly to work and do your chores, and then you can go buy that thing for yourself. So this is what happens when it's relational versus transactional. But here's the problem. The problem is you as a parent, you as a dad, you're not going to be perfect at it. You are going to mess it up. I, as a dad, mess it up, um, you know, frequently. Um, I, I celebrate the times where I don't mess it up, but the times that I do, I mess it up, right? And Jesus knows this, so he extends this analogy. Look at what he says. He says, if you then, though you, if you, he said, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, he said, will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So here's what he's saying here. And I love how he just, as an aside, drops in this, you, by the way, who are evil, you are, you know, it's like, it's not even the point of what he's saying. It's just, an, it's just like, we all know this, right? You're, like, you're, you're evil, you're broken, you're flawed. He just says it. you're going to mess up, right? He says, even you know how to give good gifts, but... Your heavenly Father knows how to give perfect gifts. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So an earthly father, a loving father, seeks what is good for his child. He says this, but a perfect father knows what is good for his child. A perfect father knows what is good for his child. Um, You may be familiar with the story of Joseph. Joseph. and his father Jacob. And Jacob was one of the patriarchs uh, of Israel. And he had this son. And he was his favorite son. And, he, and his name was Joseph. And he gave Joseph all the blessings of the family. He had 11 other sons. But he loved Joseph the most. And he wanted to do what was best for Joseph. So he favored him. And he honored him. And he elevated him. And he talked up he talked him up in front of everybody and he would give him the biggest slice of food and he just honored this guy. And in fact, he gave him special clothes, made him a coat of many colors, did everything that he could do for the benefit of this one child, right? But he was wrong. Dad was wrong. 
Because everything that he tried to do to elevate this child backfired. His brothers turned on him. His brothers hated him. His brothers threw Joseph into a pit, took his coat, tore it up, put blood on it, made it seem like he had been killed, sold him into slavery. He went to Egypt, ended up as a slave in Egypt, worked for a a guy named Potiphar. His wife lied on Joseph, and Joseph got thrown into prison. Decades, decades, Joseph was in prison, and in, at least in part because his dad, in trying to do something good, had done something bad, right? But God takes that which is bad and turns it into something good. He takes our mess-ups and he can turn those into miracles because God had a bigger plan for Joseph than Jacob could have ever dreamed. Joseph may have, Jacob may have dreamed that Joseph was going to lead their little clan out in the desert God said, no, I want him to be the prince of Egypt because I want him to save millions of people from drought and famine, right? Took him out of the prison, elevated him to become the prince of Egypt, right? Because our, our, our earthly father wants to do good, seeks to do good, tries to do good, messes it up, but our heavenly father knows what is good and knows what is perfect. And here's the story. Here's the thing with Joseph. And here's something I think that, for me, I've been thinking about and praying about all week, is that we don't always know what the Father is up to. We don't always know, and we cannot possibly fathom what is going on in the Father's mind. So when Joseph was in prison and and a slave, year one, year two, year three, Year, fi- year 15, year 17, year 22, year 25, year 29, year 36, year 38, year 39. He starts to go, maybe God doesn't care about me at all. Maybe there is no God. Because God isn't a genie, and God isn't a formula, and God, I just don't even know if he's real. He may just be a fiction, because I'm trying, I'm here, and I've had dreams, and I thought he was with me, and where is he, Right? But here's the thing about being a child. We don't always know what our father is up to. So my boys don't understand the nuances of my decisions toward them. It is inconceivable to them why they cannot have ice cream for breakfast. They cannot possibly fathom why a dad would choose to withhold something that is so clearly good. Vanilla bean. So rich and creamy. How could my dad withhold this from me? It is a good thing, right? But they don't know what's going on. And we, as with our limited capacity, our limited understanding, we can't possibly understand what is going on in the grand sweeping scope of God's kingdom. It's not all here yet. There was a, 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 a hymn that we grew up singing. And when I was a kid, I did not like this hymn. Um, it was a hymn by Charles Albert Tenley. Tenley was um, uh, a pastor in Philadelphia in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, his father was a slave. His mother was free. He educated himself, and he became the pastor of one of the most prominent churches in all of uh, Philadelphia. Um, massive revivals there, and he wrote um, incredible sermons. They called him uh, the, uh, the prince of the pulpit. Um, but he also wrote these beautiful hymns. And he, and he wrote a hymn called, We Will Understand It Better By and By. And when I grew up singing that song, I thought, 
you know, I just don't like that song, <laughs> you know, because I don't want to understand it by and by. That sounds old-fashioned. That sounds like something for the old folks. And that's not me. I want to understand it now. I want clarity now. I want the whole picture now. I don't want to see through a glass dimly. I want everything now. I want to know everything. Now, if I can't know it now, then I'm just going to reject it all in. But listen to the lyrics of this, of this hymn. It says, trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways of God would lead us to that blessed promised land. He said, but he guides us with his eye and we'll follow till we die, for we'll understand it better by and by. That's not entirely comforting to us because there's a, there's a tension in us that wants to know and understand everything. But if we really understand God as a father, then we do at some point in our heart have to surrender to him and say, God, I don't understand. I cannot explain what's going on in our world. I cannot explain why there's still racial bigotry and hatred and racism in our world. I can't understand why there's so much violence. I can't understand why people make the choices that they make, God. But ultimately, unless I'm going to despair, I have to put my trust in you as Father and say, God, I don't understand now. I trust that I will understand it better by and by. And it's not a, it's not the, the, the greatest choice. It's not the, what you want to happen, but it's what the relationship is if God is your father. It's what he is. It's what it is. But that's not all that it is, okay? Because here's what Jesus says. Jesus, Jesus takes this whole passage and he says, okay, here's, here's my, here's my passage. God is your father. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He's going to do what's best for you. And then he says one word. He says, so. So. In the Greek, that means so. Your translation may say, therefore, or consequently, or as a result of what we just heard, I'm going to tell you something. Something that logically and naturally flows from everything that I just said. After you learn that God is your father and that he loves you and that he wants what's best for you, I'm going to tell you something. And as you're thinking about it, you're going, okay, what's he going to tell us? Is he just going to tell us that, you know, we just throw up our hands and say, okay, whatever, God. Are we gonna, is he going to tell us that we should just like say, okay, uh, you know, I, I guess I'll just ride this one out. I guess I'll just wait for glory. I'll just, I'll just, just kind of scoot along in life until I die and then I'll understand it. He throws this twist on this passage that I just found to be totally mind bending as I was studying it. He says, so as a consequence, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This is the natural and logical consequence of having a loving father who wants what's best for you, who does what's best for you, who loves you with all of his heart. He says, look, ultimately, I want you then to turn around and do that to others. That's the outflow. We're not just saying we'll understand it better by and by, so we're just going to ride this out. No, we're actually becoming like the Father. Uh, Henry Nouwen, who's the, uh, a Catholic priest um, who wrote a really great book called uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son, um, wrote this book, and he used this picture, uh, this painting by Rembrandt of the story of the prodigal son. And the three main characters you see in this picture, uh, there's the father, 
Um, this man here kneeling down is the prodigal son. Um, but if you remember, there's two sons in the story. And this other son over here was the son who had behaved well and done everything right and was faithful, right? And Henry Nouwen writes in his book, he says, you know, as a, as a person in life, I relate to this, this prodigal guy. I get him. My life has looked like that before. I've run from God. I've turned my back on God. I've splurged. I've just blown it, right? I've done that. I get that. I've lived that part of my life, right? He says, also, you know what? I've been a Christian for a long time. I also get the other son, the son that's kind of standing there looking judgmental, right? Because he's been doing everything right. And so he's looking at the prodigals saying, you know what? I've done everything right. I don't know why, you know, you're giving this guy all this love and justice and mercy. I've been here the whole time faithful. What about me, right? He goes, I know what that's like, too. Because after you start following Jesus for a while, you can start thinking you're all that in a bag of chips, right? Because you're not sinning like you used to. And when you see other people doing it, you're like, well, at least I'm not like that, right? He says, I know what that's like. He said, but as I studied this passage, it occurred to me that in this parable, these boys at some point are going to grow up. And when they grow up, they need to start becoming like the father, They need to move beyond being the prodigal. They need to move beyond being the judgmental elder religious son. And at some point, they need to start becoming the father, like the father, opening their arms to those who are coming in that are prodigal and and gently instructing those who have become religious and calcified in their belief. And he said, you know what? In, In studying this passage and in studying this painting, he started to realize that ultimately God is calling each and every one of us to start identifying more and more with the Father, to imitate your perfect Father, moving beyond being the Son and start to become like the Father. You remember at the very beginning of this sermon, I said the reason that I hear my child's cry and that I respond to it is because, number one, I love him. Number two, he's my responsibility, right? And then number three, I want him to mature and become a man who loves and cares for others. That is exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, number one, God loves us. He's your Father and he loves us. Number two, he wants what's best for us. He's not going to give you a snake if you ask for bread. He's a perfect father who knows what is best for us. And number three, ultimately, ultimately, so, therefore, as a consequence of everything that he just said, number three, he wants us to become, he wants us to mature into men and women who love and care for others. This is the natural progress of fatherhood, is that we pour out love, we receive love so that we can pour it out. We are blessed so that we can become a blessing to others. We receive so that we can give. We, we learn so that we can teach. We grow so that we can help others to grow. We become strengthened so that we can strengthen others. We begin to experience God's grace and mercy so that we can extend that grace and mercy to other people. We become empowered by the Spirit so that we can empower others with the love of Jesus. What would it look like if that is what we all strived for? To not just be looking out for ourselves, to not just be like a child who's wanting, 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 that all of our prayers aren't just give me this and give me that, but ultimately our prayers become, God, how can I become like you? 
How can I become the one who's compassionate and loving and I pour out and I love like I've never loved before and I serve like I've never served before and I pray like I've never prayed before and I reach out to people that I would never have reached out to before. What if we become the conduits for changing the world around us by imitating the perfect Father? Usually at the end of each sermon, I give you one application, one thing. One thing to do to sort of apply the teaching of the sermon. And today, the application is extremely simple. All I'm asking you to do is today pray that God would use you to make the world into the world as he wants it to be. That God would use you to bring his kingdom as it is in heaven right down here on earth. When we experience the the challenges that uh, we see in our world and the tragedy that happened in Charles, and we see this and we want to throw up our hands in despair, we don't do that. We say, God, this is this is my turn time to pray that you will use me to heal this land. Use me, use us as a congregation to go out and be a light to the world. The Scripture says, "If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray." And they will seek my face and they will turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear their cries and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. That is what God is calling us to do. That's what God is calling us to be. So my one application to you today is pray that that that's you. Pray that God would use you, every dad, every man in this auditorium, every woman in this auditorium. Pray that God would use you and use us to change his world into the world as it is in heaven. Amen. Let me pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. And we thank you that you're a father. We thank you that you love us and that you give good gifts to us. We know that we cannot and cannot possibly understand uh, everything that's going on in the world. And and, um, we may even be tempted, Lord, at some time to just throw up our hands and say, I don't know. I I can't fix it. I I, I don't know what to do. Uh, Maybe you're not even there. Um, We pray, Lord God, that you would keep us from the temptation of despair and that you would draw us into faith with you, that you would draw us into a relationship with you that we start to cry out to you as a child does to a father, and that we trust that your response is as a loving father to us, a perfect response. And ultimately, God, we pray that you would mature us and develop us and strengthen us so that we could become more and more like you, that we could be the face of Christ to those that we meet, those that are unloved, those that are hurting, those that are struggling, those that are worn down and beat down and hurting, God. We just pray that we would become a light to them, each and every one of us. Transcend ourselves. Become part of something that's greater than ourselves. Not worrying about ourselves, Lord God, but reaching out and empowering other people with your love and your mercy and your grace. We pray that for ourselves today. We pray that you would help us to be part of the solution, Lord God. Each and every one of us, give us your strength, Lord. Give us your strength and your courage and your joy to go out of here today, Lord God, with hope in our heart and to take that hope to other people, Lord. 
with peace and strength and justice in our heart and take that peace, strength, and justice to our world. Father, we pray this to you that you may receive all the glory and you may receive all the honor and the power and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. I'm going to...